Hi everybody, this is Gad Saad. As many of you know, I've been critiquing specific aspects of academia for several decades now. I've been a professor since 1994, and I've had the opportunity over now nearly three decades to see both uh, the wonderful elements of academia, but also some things that can certainly be improved. And of course, as many of you know, in The Parasitic Mind, I discussed the idea pathogens that were spawned on university campuses originally and subsequently were promulgated to every nook and cranny of society. But I've also, in various settings, discussed other problems within academia, problems uh, beyond just the, the, the wokeness that we uh, are now all familiar with. Uh, so what I thought I would do today is discuss some of these problems. Uh, incidentally, I'll be discussing some of these issues in my forthcoming book uh, when I talk about uh, intellectual variety seeking in one of the chapters. Uh, but in any case, I just put together a quick list, which I'll refer to here. So these are some of the issues. It's not an exhaustive list. Maybe at some point I'll, I'll put together you know, a definitive sort of exhaustive full list of the various distinct problems within academia, but I thought I would just share with you a few of, you know, the important problems, again, beyond the idea pathogens that I discuss in the parasitic mind. So the first one that I wrote here is the the nature of uh, academic bureaucracies. Uh, I, I did a sad truth on this issue, a I think a couple of years ago, but it's worth repeating the, the extent to which we are shackled just by the weight of bureaucracies is simply astonishing. Uh, a few years ago, when I still held a university-wide chaired professorship, uh, you know, I would have to fill out a progress reward, uh, report every 15 seconds because some unit somewhere in the university uh, needed to have a progress report of what I had done. And so I would end up spending tons of my time filling out endless paperwork. Think about the the paperwork you have to do when you have to clear ethics committees now. Again, not that ethics review boards are, are not important. Of course they are. You want to make sure that researchers behave in an ethical manner uh, when designing their uh, studies involving human uh, and animal subjects. But the extent to which the paperwork now has grown is, is astounding. So every single step of being a professor has become more onerous because of the endless growth in bureaucratic oversight. So much so that, you know, many people now rue having to apply for a grant because they know that the amount of paperwork that they'll have to go through, you know, will take all summer to, to fill out a grant. Again, not the scientific content of the grant application, but just the endless paperwork. So bureaucracies only grow, they only serve to reduce innovation and, you know, uh, rapid entrepreneurial projects. Uh, and so, in a sense, because of the weight of academic bureaucracies, uh, it ends up being a place where, you know, innovation goes to die. So bureaucracies are dreadful. On a related note, centralized administration, uh, you know, good old socialism, communism finds its way to universities whereby everything becomes centralized. So, you know, there used to be a time when, for example, in my university, we used to have many different professors teaching consumer behavior. 
And depending on that professor's approach, some were more anthropological in their approach, others were more psychological in their approach. In my case, I, of course, also had an evolutionary bent to my approach. And then depending on the professor that you had, you might get a slightly different weighing on, you know, uh, what was focused on. But that was part of the beauty of being a university student, which is you, you got to benefit from the unique lens and perspective of a given professor. Whereas subsequently, these courses became standardized. So if you were teaching a course that had multiple sections, everybody has to teach the same thing. Everybody has to have the same common exam. There is a centralized process. I remember when I was a uh, still a doctoral student, but going out on the market for for my first professorship, one of the places that I came close to getting a job at was Harvard Business School. When I had gone there for a campus visit, I remember I sat in on a meeting where all of the professors who were teaching the Harvey uh, Harvard MBA students the the, the capstone marketing course, all of the professors, I think there were maybe, I don't know how many sections, maybe six, seven, eight sections, they would have to get together and agree on every single syllable that they were going to say for the next lecture, what the board plan was, what they're going to put on the board, when they're going to put it, how they're going to put it, in which location, everything was standardized. And as I was sitting and listening to that, already being the honey badger that I was back then, I thought, oh, oh, this is not going to really jive well with me because I want to bring in my unique style, my unique expertise. I want to be innovative. I don't want to be shackled by standardization pressures. And, and that's only growing in universities. Innovation, no, no. Standardization, stay within the lanes that we tell you to stay in. Not good when, you, when innovation, whether it be pedagogic innovation or research innovation, should be de rigueur. It's hardly that in most instances. Of course, related to this idea of staying within your lane, staying within the bounds of groupthink, herd mentality is a devastating reality in academia, right? I mean, and I, I do re refer to that in the parasitic mind, right? Cowardice, intellectual cowardice is what allows all of these idea pathogens to flourish in universities. But even within your research program, people tend to be plus epsilon researchers. What do I mean by that? They find a narrow area of specialization and then they pump out ever more esoteric papers with a plus epsilon, a little you know, new incremental knowledge. And that allows them to have economies of scale because if they stay within their lane, they keep publishing papers that will be read by very few people in an ever narrower field, then they can as I said, have economies of scale. They don't have to learn a new literature. They don't have to learn new methodologies. They don't have to learn new theoretical frameworks. They can benefit from being a specialized expert. Now, and I talk about specialization versus being a generalist in my forthcoming book. That's not necessarily a good thing. Of course, it's important to be an expert, a specialist in some domain, but it's also important to have broad view to be an interdisciplinarian, which leads me to a next problem in academia, which again, I also talk about in my forthcoming book. Every single university that you could think of from this side of their mouth will say, we, we are strongly committed to interdisciplinarity. But then from this side of the mouth, as soon as you propose something that is indeed interdisciplinary in nature, everybody turns tribal. I try to in 
introduce a university-wide evolutionary studies program at my university following the model that was first established at SUNY Binghamton by David Sloan Wilson, the evolutionary biologist. And when I pitched the idea to the various deans, suddenly everybody becomes tribal. So again, what universities say about interdisciplinarity and what they do with interdisciplinarity is very different. So let me just kind of go through this list here. Uh, so I'll mention two more. Lack of intellectualism. Regrettably, most professors are not intellectuals. Now, what you might say, well, what does that mean? An intellectual is someone who is committed to cerebral pursuits for, for truly no other reason than the pursuit of the cerebral life, right? They have broad interests. Think about a true public intellectual in the uh, you know, old style of the term. It's someone who could sit down and talk about philosophy, who could talk about physics, who could talk about art history, right? It's someone who is committed to navigating intellectual landscapes. Again, not to push the promotion of my forthcoming book. I talk about this in my forthcoming book when I talk about, you know, pursuing well-being and happiness. I talk about being a cerebral hedonist, if you'd like. Well, most academics are anything but intellectual. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why I disengaged from many of the academic conferences, because I started off naively thinking that when you go to these conferences, it's an orgy of, you know, intellectual conversations and so on. Whereas in most cases, it was posturing, it was signaling, it was, uh, you know, fake careerist pursuits. And I'm someone who's very authentic, I'm someone who doesn't play those games. And so I felt very uncomfortable in even being around folks who were doing that. And so while, you know, being a professor has always been part of me, being a professor is in my DNA, uh, in my view, to be a, a true professor is to be intellectual, is to be willing to engage in endless conversations for no other purpose than to simply be navigating as I said, these cerebral landscapes, again, all of which I discuss in my forthcoming book. So related to the lack of intellectualism of most professors is a regrettably so a staunch commitment to careerism. So what do I mean by that? Most academics play the public publication game. So they learn what the rules of the game are, and then they play along. So there are courses that I know of where they teach people not how to think as doctoral students, but how to position papers so that they could be they could pass the reviewer process. I find that very offensive because nature, the phenomena that you're studying, don't adhere to the fads of the day. You should apply moderation analysis, mediational analysis. These are statistical uh, techniques, uh, but. That's exactly what students are taught. They taught recipes of how to play the game. And again, as a purist, I despise that. So in a lot of cases, I checked out out of a lot of those things and said, no, no, I'm going to walk to my own uh, you know, beat, my own drummer, because I'm not going to play those games because it would attack my sense of purity. Of course, in some sense, that you bear a cost for doing that because if you don't play the game, then people point to you as a, quote, troublemaker. But I don't care. At least I am honest and truthful. So careerism is detrimental to the pure pursuit of knowledge because 
the pursuit of knowledge at its essence should be the reward in of itself. It's not so that you can publish in this journal or that journal. But I found that in most academics that I've dealt with, and again, I, you know, I've been a professor for almost 30 years, are dreadfully non-intellectual and dreadfully careerist in their bents, right? Whereas in my case, as many of you know, I've mentioned this on many occasions, I've published papers in medicine and bibliometric and psychology and advertising and politics and uh, evolutionary theory and mate search and gift giving and, and on and on and on. Be precisely because I just went wherever I found an interesting problem. I've published a paper on, uh, you know, uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy. What does that have to do with being in a business school? Nothing. But I was interested in this problem. It arose while I was working on my first book as something that I thought would be interesting to, to pursue as I was doing some research for my first book. And therefore, I published a paper on it. That's if you forgive me, I'm not trying to toot my horn. That's what a true intellectual does. I wasn't bound by the rules of how to play the game. I wasn't bound by, you know, these are the journals I should publish in. I thought it was an interesting problem. I had something hopefully worthwhile to say. I went ahead and I pursued it. So all of these problems, some of which are linked with one another, right? Lack of intellectualism and careerism is related. Uh you know, centralized administration and bureaucracy are related. So so there are all sorts of endemic and systemic problems in academia that extend well beyond the idea pathogens that I describe in the parasitic mind. Uh, so, you know, is there a way to, to, to address this? I mean, yes, there are some long-term solutions that one can help. You know, you can create reward structures that specifically reward innovative works, you know, uh, discontinuous innovations, things that are not plus epsilon studies. You can specifically try to reward interdisciplinary research. So there are ways by which you can incentivize people to break free of some of the problems that academia currently faces. But again, uh, regrettably, uh, the, the problem in academia is so much broader than simply the 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 parasitic ideas that uh, I'm, you know, I've described now for many years and that I, you know, wrote about in the parasitic mind. So this gives you a sense of some of the challenges that academia faces. And one of the reasons why, you know, people sometimes think that I'm, you know, very, very critical of academia as though, you know, I'm sort of a dissident academic who despises academia. Nothing could be further from the truth. I am I love academia. I love being a professor. I love the pure pursuit of knowledge just for its intrinsic value. And so if I'm ever critical about the current state of academia, it's precisely because of my deep love and reverence for the, the cerebral life that I critique academia. So uh, has academia done wonderful things? Of course it has. Uh, is it now somewhat losing its way and there are ways by which we can redress some of these problems? Absolutely so. So hope this helps people get a sense of where we are in academia. I wish you all a great day. And if you appreciate my work and would like to support it, please subscribe to the channel. Please post comments, like the, the, the clip. You can support me through my donation portals, all sorts of ways that you can support the folks who are trying to fight for your children receiving a better education. Cheers, everybody.